The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for what you need to know to attain financial independence and stay out of big trouble in real estate investing. And our topic today falls more into that latter category because we have with us here on Real Life Real Estate Investing a couple of experts on lead paint and the requirements for you listeners in terms of disclosure and abatement and control and all of those important things that we're all vaguely aware have to be done, but we may not be aware of exactly how that has to be done. And we've got some some big guns today uh, with me here in the studio. I have Michael Lawyer. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't quite get over that. He is, in fact, an attorney with... Uh, the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, his specific job, uh, I'm going to read your whole title here, okay? This is the only time in the show that I'm going to do this, though. He's the program analyst in the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development Office of Healthy Home and Lead Hazard Control Division of Lead Program Enforcement. And we will come back to exactly what that means a little bit later on. Uh, also, we have joining us by phone Warren Friedman, who is a senior advisor in HUD's Office of Healthy Homes and Lead Hazard Control. Welcome, Warren. Greetings. Good. I'm, I'm <laughs> had a little bit of concern there about was he, was we actually going to be able to hear him, but we hear you loud and clear, Warren. And uh, we understand that uh, you are a guy who has deeply studied some of the effects that uh, lead poisoning has on children and is very, very familiar uh, with some of the, the rules and regs and legislation out there. So we are going to be calling upon you as necessary as our highest authority expert on the show uh, today. Uh, we're here to discuss for the purposes of educating real-life real estate listeners who are, are, are not folks who own you know 300-unit federally subsidized properties. They're, they're, they're the smaller landlords and smaller renovators about what the current requirements are uh, regarding both disclosure and uh, safe lead practices, because we had we heard a lot about this around 1996, a lot. <laughs> and all the RIA groups went and got out the word, and, and there were these disclosures we were supposed to do, and there was this thing called encapsulation that we needed to worry about. And we haven't really heard much since then because, uh, Michael, as you pointed out in a presentation yesterday uh, to some local organizations, it's not like this is front page news every day. It's not. And part of that is is because all of that work that you all did in the 90s 
paid off. Um, we were able to bring the national rates of lead poisoning uh, among children under six down from nearly 8% to just under 1%. So we made great progress and we contained the problem. Uh, the problem is, is that lead being a metal doesn't go away on its own. Uh, and those problems are still out there uh, waiting to come back out. Um, and we need to stay on top of it so that we can help keep the kids safe. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Michael, you, you are from HUD in, in Washington, and yet you are in Cincinnati this week. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about why that is to give folks some perspective on how seriously HUD takes this. HUD takes this issue very, very seriously. I mean, really, you do have children's lives and well-being on the line with this issue. Um, and so we take enforcement of both the lead safe housing rule and the lead disclosure rule very seriously. And I'm out here looking at some properties and meeting with some folks in the local health departments to see where we have challenges and if there are good places to bring enforcement actions in the greater Cincinnati metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Folks who might be sitting around going, yeah, but you know, I know they've got these roles out there, but they don't really enforce them. I don't know anybody who's really had them enforced against them. That's just not the reality. Not at all. In fact, uh, just this spring, we brought down a fairly large case in Chicago uh, with a total value of just under $2.5 million against a Chicago landlord that had taken that exact approach that um, we weren't really going to be able to enforce this and it wasn't really his problem to deal with. Uh, and that ended up not being the case for him in a, in a very expensive way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, listeners, uh, you need to get your house in order in this regard. Uh, if, if uh, For some of you, this, this may literally be the first time you're hearing this because you're relatively new to the landlording business. You have not joined a real estate investors association. Uh, you haven't. You, you you're vaguely aware that there's this thing called lead paint, but you're not sure what you're supposed to do about it. Uh, there's a record keeping component here, and there's a maintenance component here, and you need to be taking notes about what those things are, so that you are not the next two and a half million dollar example made by HUD. Now, uh, again, I think just to sort of lay the groundwork for folks, um, the term lead poisoning, everybody everybody knows that. Everybody knows it's bad. Everybody knows it, it, it hurts children. But what, what is it specifically that, that happens if, if we have uh, houses with, uh, with toxic amounts of, of lead dust in them? Well, lead actually hurts everybody, not just children. The, uh, the challenge is, is that we see it in children first. Um, we have had some cases with adults, particularly if they work in industries around lead, where they have gotten lead poisoning. Um, but what happens is lead was put uh, put into paint because it does two great things for paint. It, I mean, it just makes better paint. It makes it harder and more durable, and it makes it dry faster and go on easier, um, which means it was great for using on all of those tricky spots like doors and windows where you're always banging them around and you want stuff to uh, hold up for you. The only problem is is that because it's a drying agent, if the lead coat of paint is ex- is exposed, it continues to dry forever. And through a process that's called chalking, um, what it does is it it makes this chalk-like powder on the surface of the paint, and that falls down, and that falls under the windowsills, and it falls under the floors. Uh, And then you take your average kid, two, three years old, crawling around on the floor in front of the window, finding a sunny spot to lay down and read a book, play with their toys. They get that all over their hands, and um, 
I know my kids occasionally forget to wash their hands. I'm sure all of our listeners' children are perfectly well-behaved and wash their hands before every meal and snack. Uh, but there are some children out there who do just stick their fingers in their mouth. And that dust goes straight into their body, and that um, begins to do damage to their neurosystem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, what, and what sort of effects do we see uh, in this long term? Because like, back in the 1950s, there were like 150 lead clinics in the United States that, that children would get so badly lead poisoned that they would be taken to one of these freestanding clinics that only because they could die. Like they, yes. they could be dead in a few days and we don't hear too much about that sort of thing anymore. So what is it that, that is happening to these children short and long term? Well, I mean, they can die. Uh, and that does still occasionally happen. It's it's very, very rare now, thanks to the great prevention that, that's out there and that we've sort of gotten a handle on that. Um, but it, I mean, the big thing that people see is it causes brain damage. Um, it causes damage to a number of other organs and systems in the body, but sort of the part that that everybody's worried about and that comes out and gets you is, you know, it, it just knocks points off your IQ um, and everybody will respond to it a little bit differently. Uh, and the circumstances always vary, so we can't pinpoint down exactly, you know, one milligram or one, <laughs> one, one dust granule will cause you half an IQ point. Um, but we do know that it's very, very hard on the nervous system. We know it correlates with lower intelligence. We also know it links to increased aggression uh, and behavioral issues. And so you get a lot of knock-on effects going down the line that it's not just that child having challenges. All those behavior issues show up in school, cause problems for the family as they're trying to support their child through that. Uh, and we've seen a lot of strong correlations coming out as well on a on a community level that if you have a large enough population of children with lead poisoning issues in 18 years, you get uh, you, you have more crime. Uh, fortunately, we've seen it the other way that when that lead poisoning comes down, crime comes down 18 years later. It's a real strong correlation. Um, and so it's it's a problem for the individual. It's a problem for the family and it's a problem for the community. And Warren, be, before we go to break, I, I'm going to I'm going to throw this one out to you. Uh, Michael sure. mentioned earlier that that we were we, we were down to to one percent or less of children that could be considered lead poisoned, even by standards that have dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped in the last 50 years. I mean, it's gone. The, 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 the standard of, of lead poisoning has gone from 50 micrograms per deciliter to 10. And now the CDC is looking at five. So at what point? At what point do we clear, declare this war won? Well, we are on our way to winning, but it's going to be a difficult situation for a long time, and I'm referring to probably decades. The science has improved, and based on that, we were able to go down, as you say, from 50, then down to 25, then down to 10. And part of that is that medical science has improved and the ways of looking at the data have improved and we've been able to see more clearly what happens in the more subtle effects that we had not been able to detect earlier when we do this we certainly want to get to that point where there's an undetectable number of children with high lead levels but because there is lead in 38 million homes, and there is lead that gets into children's bodies from other sources, such as certain folk medicines, certain cosmetics if they're swallowed, a number of other sources. 
we know as a practical matter we will not get rid of lead as a hazard permanently. And I want to say forever, that is basically true, echoing what Michael said at the beginning, that because lead is a metal, it's not as if it can degrade and turn into something else. But our goal at HUD, and we share this with our colleagues at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, our colleagues at the Environmental Protection Agency, and the Consumer Protection uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission, the four most prominent agencies on the lead issue, we're trying to get the lead levels down as low as possible and trying to get the exposures to lead down as low as possible, which is, of course, why the real estate industry is such an important player in doing this. Very good. Uh, We need to take a quick break. I do want to invite listener questions at 877-772-9658. That's toll free from anywhere where you might be hearing my voice. You can also send an email. Just send it to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guests today are Michael Lawyer, who is is with the Office of Healthy Homes and Lead Hazard Control, and Warren Friedman, who is a senior advisor in HUD's Office of Healthy Homes and Lead Hazard Control. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the folks who are in the enforcement division of uh, this thing that we're all supposed to be doing in regards to disclosures and uh, just maintaining our properties in such a way as to minimize the risk of lead poisoning in children. So, Michael, let's start by narrowing this down to who amongst our listeners should be concerned. We've got we've got our landlords and we've got our renovators, but really there's only particular kinds of houses that you guys are concerned about. That's right. It's only houses that were built before 1978. That's the year that we finally banned lead paint in residential uses, uh, and it's only houses that were built before 1978 that are subject to uh, the laws that we enforce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then there's some there's some smaller uh, like like um, uh, dorm rooms aren't, yes. <laughs> aren't included uh, in. If you if your buildings are only single room occupancy, uh, any single room occupancy unit that you have would be exempt. If you have units that are or buildings that are designated for um, the elderly or disabled, and that has to be in in the deeds or in the documents for the building, you can't just say not designated by you. <laughs> yes, exactly. It has to be a meaningful designation, a real designation. Um, then they are exempt as long as no children live there. But we uh, are seeing some challenges where you have a building that is a disabled building, but disabled people do still have children. Um, and there are certainly, I'm sure your your listeners are aware, senior buildings where uh, grandchildren are moving back in or spending much of their time with their grandparents. Uh, and so if you know you have a child in that unit, it's, it's back in mm-hmm. uh, and you have to take care of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you gave the presentation earlier this week, uh, you, were, you, you really uh, were talking to the Apartment Association who are going to be the very big owners and also CMHA who runs all the public housing here in the Cincinnati area. Uh, but when you and I talked about the smaller landlords who are members of the Real Estate Investors Associations, not the Apartment Association, and who may not be a member of an association anywhere, uh, you said, wow, those are the people we really need to talk to. What What is HUD's concern in regards to those folks? Well, 
Our real challenge is, is that by the time you're one of the big guys with a thousand units scattered all over the city, you've got a pro maintenance staff and they've gotten all of the trainings and they've gotten all of the certifications and that they are on top of all of that for you. So you just need to be aware of it, but you've got people who can handle it for you. If you are a smaller landlord and you are trying to do a lot of the work yourself or you and just a couple of folks on your team, you may not have had the time to pay attention to this. I mean, we at HUD, we know the affordable housing business is not easy. Uh, and working, at, especially at the more affordable ends of the market, is a challenging place to make a living. And you have a lot of things to worry about. Um, so we know how easy it can be to let this issue slip off your radar. Uh, and it's really important that, that it not do that. Um, because I'm sorry, I was paying attention to something else. Um, isn't a valid excuse. Uh, <laughs> it, it didn't work on your traffic ticket, and it, it doesn't work on this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, although I've never seen any official statistics on this uh, issue, uh, it's always been the belief of national RIA, from what statistics we can gather, that actually most rental housing is not supplied by the guy who owns a thousand units. It's supplied by the guy who has two other houses other than his own or the guy who's got 20 or one or 50. So lots of housing mm -hmm. involved there and so much less uh, of uh, uh, a knowledge of a lot of this stuff. And that's total. Uh, that that totally matches with our experience. I mean, as you said, the statistics are a little bit spotty on that, um, but we know it's a lot of good people trying to do what they can with as many units as they can piece together who provide the majority of affordable housing uh, in this country. We, you know, HUD certainly does provide what funding it can, but we can't house the world uh, or even even the American portion of it. <laughs> okay, well, let's let's start with the easy part, which is disclosure. That, that we can give folks a, a web links right now where they can go, go download every piece of disclosure information they need, copy it a million times and keep it in their files and do exactly what they're supposed to do with it. So let's talk about what those disclosures are, yep. what, they, what they say and where people can get them. Um, we have a lot of great resources available for that at www.hud.gov slash lead. Uh, tried to make it as easy to remember as we could. Um, now we don't have. If I, if I may add in, on that on that page, there is a link for lead regulations. So it's at the bottom left of that page, and then you can get to the lead regulations that Michael's talking about. Okay, wonderful. What we don't have is a standard form. And that's because some states have individual laws that are a little bit stricter than our laws, so you need to check with your, your local state resources on that. Um, and so that may vary depending on where you're listening to us from. I know the state of Ohio has some great resources on their website, um, and usually if you just search the name of your state and lead and Department of Health or resources, there will be somebody who's got an answer for you. And a lot of the uh, the various associations and trade groups have also provided useful kits. It should also be in any standard book of forms that you buy at the store of, you know, Landlording 101. They should be having the lead forms in there. And if they don't, don't buy that book. Get a better book. Um, so there's a lot of really simple templates that you can use. 
But basically what you need to do is you need to have something uh, as an appendix to your lease or, or attached with your documents that has the standard lead warning statement, um, which I'm not going to try and recite from memory because I always get it wrong. Um, but it's, there's some standard fixed language on that. You need to disclose any specific knowledge you have about that unit or property. And that's where a lot of people get hung up. Uh, and then there's a pamphlet that, again, you can download for free that you need to make sure that your tenants are getting a copy of uh, to, on how to protect yourself from lead in your home. And that um, provides a lot of the resident education stuff um, so that they know, you know, dusting regularly is important not just because mom's coming over uh, and you wash your hands before meals, not just because it's good manners, uh, but there's actually some real safety issues there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if I may add on what Michael is saying, on our website, Michael is correct, we don't have a required form. We have sample forms, and many states do accept that. And these are sample-led disclosure rule documents. One is for the sale of homes, and another is for renting homes. And we're, of course, as Michael said earlier, talking about pre-1978 homes. Now, we have both of these documents for sale and for rental in English and in Spanish. Michael also referred to the Protect Your Family from Lead in Your Home pamphlet that goes along with the disclosure form, and we have that translated as in English as well as translated into six other languages. So the material has to be provided in the language of the lease. That's what's in the law. And so if the lease is written in Spanish, then the disclosure is in Spanish. And that's what Congress said in terms of making sure that the tenant or the buyer would know what disclosed and mm -hmm. how it's being disclosed. Mm -hmm. So keeping it in the same language is very important. Thank you very much, Warren. Now, uh, so, so most folks are going to be able to go to hud.gov slash lead, download one of these, what you're calling sample language uh, disclosure forms, which I think most, most people in our business think of a standard <laughs> language. And it says on it, uh, uh, I do know of, of lead issues and here, and something's attached, or I do not know of lead issues. And that caused a lot of confusion when those first came out because what does no mean? You know, if, if I've got a house that was built in 1890 and, in Cincinnati, you're likely to own several of those if you're a landlord. I know that that was at some point uh, painted with lead paint, but I don't know it in the sense that I painted it or that I have ever had it tested. So what does that, what does, what does specific knowledge really mean? Well, we hope no one listening to the show is still painting with lead paint. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we, we hope your knowledge isn't ever coming that way. Uh, but what it means is that you have some documentable test that this is where the lead is. Um, the, the generic I don't know specifically says, includes, on the sample forms, includes some of that old houses have lead language. Um, it's if you have a specific report, if you have had an inspection or a risk assessment in your home. Um, we are also beginning to see 
um, with the EPA's RRP rule coming out that if you have had someone who is a trained inspector who's used one of those lead check um, kits that you can get at the hardware store now, there's a couple of brands that are recognized by the EPA. If they've used one of those and it's shown lead, they can say that that is lead. Um, it the problem is, is you have to be certified to do that, and you can't use it to prove a negative because those tests do occasionally give a false negative, and so you can't say that I'm lead free because I ran the little swabs all over my house and nothing showed up. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the that is one of the very new things in the lead world is these uh, approved by the EPA tests because there have been little swabs you could go to the hardware store and buy for years, but nobody was standing behind them and saying, yeah, they. They work. For all we knew, they were Q-tips with alcohol on them. You know, we, we, we just didn't know what they were. And and so what, what landlords would sometimes do is they'd go and use those just for their own information. But now there are two brands that mm-hmm. the EPA has actually certified, yes, these are ho- effectively home lead test kits. And if you go and swab it with that and it turns the wrong color, now do you have actual knowledge? You do, but it doesn't really change your disclosure very much other than you have to update your lease for that I mean, for that unit, if it's interior for the building, if it's in uh, a common area, or if it's on the exterior. Um, you just have to update your lease to indicate that I found lead in, you know, the bedroom window or, or wherever you found it. And otherwise, that's, that's the only real difference that you have going forward. The other thing is, is that especially with older housing, you know, it's a little fuzzy in the 70s. There, a lot of people had stopped using lead paint. Uh, in the 60s, a couple people had stopped using lead paint. Um, if your housing is pre-war, you got lead paint. You're not you're not changing anything um, by knowing where it is. You're just able to give your tenants a little bit more information about the place that they're renting and help them protect themselves. Very good. Uh, We need to take a quick break. I again want to invite listeners to ask any questions you have on on these lead issues in general, because uh, we've only got an hour to discuss what we could probably sit here and and keep saying new things about for three hours. Uh, And I may not ask the questions on your mind. So send it to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V, like in Victor, E-N-A, at gmail.com. Or you can just give us a call at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guests today are Michael Lawyer and Warren Friedman from HUD, as in those folks up in Washington that uh, do a whole bunch of things. Section 8 program, FHA loans, also a lot of uh, work over the last 20 years on lead disclosures, uh, child poisoning prevention, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're talking today about what is required from you in the way of disclosure and maintenance. And uh, we have a listener question here, Michael, from Julie in Northern Kentucky. She says, I'm hoping Michael can answer a question that I cannot seem to get an answer on from anybody. I lease option houses. In other words, there is a lease and a purchase contract in the same contract. Am I supposed to do the disclosure for renters or the disclosure for sales? I do hope Warren can answer that question for you, Julie. Um, yeah, Warren, what she's referring to is a contract wherein it's a it's a lease right now, but it's a delayed sale. And generally, one would hand a lead disclosure to a buyer at the time at which they signed a purchase contract. But this purchase isn't going to consummate for maybe four to five years. So should she do the the rental disclosure or should she do both at the outset of this agreement? 
a very good question. Because of the time delay being so long, the best thing for her to do is to do the rental right now, because that's the status that these people are in. Um, and then when the sale goes through, because after all, it may not go through. Something may happen. People may move out. You know, anything could happen between now and three, four years from now. And then she could do the sale when the sale does go through. Okay. And for, I should say, fortunately, because the requirements under the law are so similar, the forms are very similar. And so it won't be a real burden to do it the next time. But there are a couple of small points that need to be addressed. So this way she can have her folks covered by the rental now and the sale down the road. Uh -huh. and, and by the way, those of you out there who are uh, carrying paper on the sales of your properties, doing things like land contracts, owner-held mortgages, you're still selling the house. You're not thinking about it as it being sold, but the IRS is. So uh, don't forget to do your lead disclosures at the outset of your contracts for deed as well. Uh, Corey from Greenville, South Carolina would like to know what specific lead tests are approved by EPA because he went to his hardware store recently and says there are still a few dozen on the shelves. Um, the EPA maintains a list on their website and a quick search will get you there. There are two right now and it is uh, the 3M lead check and uh, D-Link. Not D-Link, that's the routers. It's um, D-Lead. Thank you. <laughs> D-Lead is the, is the other one. I knew I was close. Uh, and those are the two that are officially approved. But um, as far as getting knowledge goes, they're only approved when they're in the hands of a certified individual. So just, I mean, the EPA has approved them. We know they're reliable tests. But as far as documenting knowledge, it has to be done by somebody who's got uh, a license to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'd like to add one more point on this. Uh, because, Vienna, your show does have a nationwide outreach, I'd like to point out that in the state of Massachusetts, there is a state of Massachusetts spot test kit, and EPA has tested it and recognized that it is okay to use on drywall and plaster in Massachusetts. Okay. So the folks up in the Northeast should know that information. Thank you, Warren. Uh, so we're talking about disclosure, and we we do want to get to the other part of this, but but the disclosure part, Michael, is what you actually enforce. You you do not go get people because they have poisoned a child. You go get people because they haven't done their disclosures. That's right. Um, we do understand that you know. Well, we talked a little bit about the most common way for children to get poisoned earlier. That there are a lot of ways that children can get poisoned. They can find lead in lots of places. Um, we've had some very tragic cases uh, where it was a, a piece of jewelry that a well-meaning aunt had brought back from a trip abroad. Um, we've had cases where it was a bargain deal on dishware uh, that happened to be glazed with heavy lead glaze. Um, so we know that it's not necessarily the landlord's fault if the child gets poisoned. Um, but we know that there are a lot of things that landlords can do to make that a lot less likely and to make sure that if that happens, it's coming from a source 
outside of their home. So what we enforce is the disclosure, and we will go back through uh, lease and sale transactions and make sure that the right documentation was there and that uh, your tenants knew what they were getting into when they signed that, or, well, we can't prove what they <laughs> what they thought. Um, I'm sure there are times you've all we wished you could prove. We can prove they signed it. <laughs> yes, we can prove they signed it. I wish that, <laughs> there have been times we were all wished we knew what they were thinking, but uh, we can prove they've signed it. We can prove that you did your part and that you notified them. Mm-hmm. And there are some fairly steep penalties for either that piece of paper just being missing from the file. I mean, that's one one thing is you just didn't give them the piece of paper uh, or for that piece of paper being falsified, as in you knew there was lead and you said you didn't know there was lead. We get really mad about that. I, I, I bet you do. So, so tell us about the current penalty structure if you go through somebody's lease file and there's no sign of a lead disclosure. If, if it's a worst case, if you have not paid any attention to this issue at all, um, it is $16,000 per violation is the maximum fine we can ask for. And then that six, there's a possibility of up to 10 violations on a form because there's uh, – or for each transaction because you've got to have the statement. You've got to have some signatures. You've got to have some dates. You've got to have evidence of the pamphlet. Um, and all this is on the website, so you don't have to worry about writing this all down right now. But there's up to 10 violations that you can commit. Uh, and so that's $160,000 per lease. And then that's every lease that you've written that's within the statute of limitations, which goes back five years. So if you have 10 units, you know, we say it's a $16,000 fine, and that seems like a lot. And we know that can be a real burden on a small landlord. Uh, but if you have 10 units and you've written a new lease every year for five years and you have not done a single thing, that adds up to $8 million in potential liability really fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those penalties are very severe uh, intentionally because it should be a lot cheaper to just do this right up front and make sure that if a child is poisoned, it's not because of your properties and it's not because of anything you did, um, that it is it is one of the tragic accidents of life. Mm-hmm. And again, this is just the paperwork violation. This isn't this isn't EPA coming after you because you didn't do the work under lead safe guidelines, and it's not the children's parents coming after you in court. That's uh, this sounds expensive. It That's gets worse. more expensive. <laughs> well, and the the law actually gives um, if the children's parents do sue you as well, they're entitled to triple damages. So it's not just that they you know I mean they still have to show that damage was done just like they would in any any lawsuit. Um, but if they can show that, and if they can show uh, it was in some way because of how you maintained your apartment or because of things that you did, they are entitled to triple um, their actual damages on that. So there are this is a really expensive issue to ignore mm-hmm. and a really simple issue to deal with right up front a mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, question from a listener this is uh duncan in la jolla california he says luckily we have a good local real estate investors association and i have always had these forms on file since 1996 the problem is i still have my form since 1996 is there some point at which i can start throwing these away <laughs> Well, um, there, there's, there's a couple things there. Uh, I'm hoping you've never had a poisoned child in one of your units because um, that changes how far back we're going to want to look. Um, we also hope that 
if you have specific knowledge, if you have an inspection record, if you have an investigation after a poison child, something from the health department, you do have to keep that record for forever. The actual disclosures on each lease, um, seven years is a good number. Uh, I, I don't want to give you a hard and fast rule, um, but seven years back, you will likely be beyond most statutes of limitations. Um, Warren, do we have a specific final number that we give in our guidance on that? I'm going to hunt that up. I'll get back. <laughs> it's, it's down there. I just have to find it. Okay. But it's unlikely you still need a disclosure form from 96. Um, if you have knowledge from 96, you you got to keep that. You, you just have to keep those for forever um, because that has to be available to anyone else. You, know, you keep that as long as you have the unit. It should go with on the sale along with the disclosure language on the sale. One final question that just came in from Cindy, who does not say where she is from. She says, just to be completely safe, at what point should I be handing tenants these disclosures? Should it be when they first come to see a unit or at the lease signing? Lease signing is fine. Um, you know, it's always, if you want to have that conversation when you're showing the unit, you're, we're certainly going to encourage that. Um, but the real the real key is when is the tenant committed to the unit so if you take a deposit from the tenant you should probably get things signed then uh, unless you intend to give that deposit back if the tenant should back out um, and don't try and tell us after the fact that of course you meant to give it back and just never got around to it um, that's so it's it's when the tenant is committed to the unit is when that needs to happen because they need to have the ability to say I'm not willing to put my family into a unit with that much lead in it Mm-hmm. We don't know that many tenants actually do say that, but they do need to be informed to have that choice. Very good. We need to take a and, quick... Athena, uh, just quickly, uh, I did confirm three years, which is the requirement, is our guidance on retaining those records. But I agree with Michael that keeping them for seven years or longer is prudent. Okay, very good. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. Again, if you have any questions about lead paint issues, go ahead and give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Uh, Quickly, before I completely forget about it in the depth of all this other conversation, Cincinnati RIA's first meeting for the month of August is tomorrow. Uh, It's hands-on rehab night, which means there will be demonstrations set up throughout the room about things like how to replace ceiling fans and and, uh, patch holes in drywall and things that uh, you might deal with on a day-to-day basis. The uh, information is at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's Cincinnati, R-E-I-A.com. That is the meeting for the entire evening. There will be networking and buy-sell trade in the middle. Also, Cincinnati RIA's wholesaling subgroup meets tonight at 6.30 at Foley's in Reading. Uh, That is open to all Cincinnati RIA members. The topic is pros and cons of selling rental versus retail properties. Now, Michael, in the eight minutes we have left, <laughs> give us some guidance about the other side of this because we can go along not knowing, not having actual knowledge that there's lead in our units and we can still accidentally lead poison children if we're not maintaining them correctly. Now, one of the things that has happened in the last 15 years is that HUD and EPA have gotten much, much, much more clear on what maintain means. In some ways, it's gotten 
easier and some some of the things that we used to be able to do we can't do anymore what does a lead safe rental unit look like uh, well, it's something where the lead paint is all contained behind a, a permanent barrier. I mean, you, don't, you don't want just another coat of paint over it um, because, as I'm sure you all know, paint wears off, gets bumped off, gets knocked off. You want something uh, – you, you want a permanent uh, enclosure over it. Um, there are HUD guidelines available on how you're required to do the work if there's HUD money in the property, uh, but also they're just good guidelines. Uh, and the other thing that we would strongly recommend that everybody do, especially if you're going to be doing your own work, is take an RRP training course. That's the EPA's Renovation, Repair, and Painting Rule. If you are disturbing paint in a pre-78 unit, you have to have taken that class or somebody on the crew has to have taken that class. And if you don't, um, that is a violation of the rules. The EPA has a whole separate set of fines and things for that. Um, but they are getting really aggressive right now uh, about cracking down on people doing work who are not RRP certified. So if you're doing your own work, take that class. Uh, and that'll give you a lot of the, the nitty gritty on here's what you have to do, here's how you handle this problem, here's how you handle that problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. And if I may add, um, EPA's lead renovation website, it's at epa.gov slash lead. There's a link for renovation. They have a small business compliance guide, and the guide is oriented for contractors, property managers, and maintenance people working on these pre-1978 homes. So there's a booklet directly for the folks who are listening to us today. Excellent, excellent. And that and that RRP training course uh, is, by the way, much more available than it was two years ago when we first had some local folks on here uh, talking about, uh, here's the requirements, but you can't find anybody to teach them to you because just started, there's no classes available for the next nine months in a row, uh, there are uh, more of these courses out there now, and it's actually pretty easy to get into the training at this point. Yes, Fina. In fact, right now there are 620 training providers who've been accredited by the EPA or by states to train people in this. And EPA at the epa.gov slash website has a link to find training providers by geographic areas. Mm-hmm. So they have a little finder, and you put in where you are, and it links you up to the folks who can provide training nearby. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this this training and these uh, what they call lead safe requirements do add an additional burden to the to to what you are actually doing, and honestly to the cost of what you are doing when you are uh, as you said disturbing paint and 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 folks go what. I, I don't go in and, and tease and yell at my paint. What, what what do you mean? Taking down kitchen cabinets, pulling out windows, uh, removing trim. Uh, uh, if the tenant has uh, their doorknob, you know, hits the hits the wall and makes a big dent, and you you end up having to uh, uh, take that piece out and put in a new piece of drywall. All of that is going to disturb paint. The fines for not doing this according to the EPA's lead safe 
regulations are again huge and again you don't have to have poisoned a, ch a child in order to be subject to those so we, we still haven't gotten around to where we might be poisoning a child yet uh, so there, there's that sort of renovation that I might be doing if I bought a new house or if I am doing a big, big, big turnover in between tenants. But what about just, you know, we, we go over to our units once every two or three months just to check things out. What should we be looking for and in, in, in curing? Just look at the quality of the paint, um, particularly around windows and doors. I mean, the places where paint wears out um, and also on the exterior, if you've got any parts that are particularly weather beaten. Um, so, you know, after a bad, bad storm, if you got something like that, just look at the quality of your paint. Um, you all know what a good coat of paint looks like. You want to keep a good coat of paint there. Uh, you want to get to it. Um, well, it's an easy problem to fix because it, well, you do need to be lead safe, obviously the bigger a chunk of the, uh, of the component you have to deal with, the more protective measures you have to set up, the more area you have to protect, fix problems while they're small fix them safely, uh, keep an eye on it. Uh, and if you've got any areas that keep wearing out, you know, rehang your doors so they don't scrape. <laughs> um, you can get jam liners for your windows so that that protects those surfaces. Um, there are a couple of places like that where it might make sense to put in a more permanent fix if it's something you find yourself having to touch up every uh, every three or six months. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, replacing the windows and doors is, uh, I know, goes a, a long, long way toward just keeping the, the, the lead dust out of the air. And if you're doing a major rehab, just do the windows. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, I'm not here to advise on curb appeal or what makes it more rentable. Um, but, you know, especially in an era of rising utility bills and all the rest, there's, do the windows. Just do them. Mm -hmm. One of the things that people find is that a lot of the activities for doing work in a lead-safe manner are good practices for keeping a home clean and easy for the tenants to move back into the space. You know, putting down plastic sheeting under the work when a wall is going to be disturbed or a door is going to be removed um, and the the frame is coming out, you know, that creates a mess. And if you put plastic sheeting down and tape it down to the floor, it's a heck of a lot easier to clean up at the end, whether or not we're dealing with a 1970 home or a 2000 home. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of these practices that are, let's say, practices that just make the job go easier. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, the cost of doing the job in terms of the time saved of what of cleaning up at the end can clearly offset the time that it takes to put down the plastic and to uh, get a spray bottle of water to spray the paint when it's being scraped. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, one, one other thing I want to address, and we've got like two minutes left. Um, the uh, there's a big difference between how the how how uh, carefully HUD watches and regulates a true complete private transaction between a guy who owns his house and a market tenant versus one where HUD has become involved financially with the deal. Uh, that's mostly going to affect us. Uh, some of our listeners buy apartment buildings and they get that great forty year HUD fixed rate three percent financing on those those deals. Uh, there's two or three K loans still out there. There's Section Eight. How do things change in regards to lead when HUD is directly involved financially? Well, when, when you take our money, you take our terms and conditions. Um, the, 
depends a little bit on what program. Uh, if you are getting a grant from city or state or for if you're getting any money that's not yours or the bank's into the deal, chances are good that HUD money is behind it somewhere. So do be sure to check that out. Um, if you do come under the lead safe housing rule because of that source of money, that means you do have a duty to go look and go see what's in the building. Um, Full-blown XRF, going to do Varies a little tests. bit depending on how much we have into the building. If we, we know if we only have a little bit into the unit, we can only ask you to do a little. If we have a lot into the unit, we can ask you to do a lot, and we will. Uh, but, yeah, if it's above 5000 per unit subsidy, you're doing a yeah. lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a risk assessment when there's a rehab above 5000 in rehab assistance. Um, doesn't necessarily require XRF testing, but it does require identifying the hazards in terms of deteriorated paint and then testing that deteriorated paint. Mm-hmm. Um, there are labs in Cincinnati specifically, but also all around the country. There are hundreds of labs that can handle this, and there are environmental consultants, these risk assessors and inspectors. There is an industry out there that can help. The other good news is that the big exception is Section 8 vouchers. If you just have a tenant with a voucher, that's a different set of rules. It's by the rules of the voucher. Talk to the housing authority as to what you have to do to get through their exam- their their process. Okay, but general rule, HUD's money, HUD's rules, better look into it before you decide how you're going to finance that project. Thank you, Michael Lawyer and Warren Freeman from... Uh, H from HUD. <laughs> so we're late and I'm getting all tongue tied. Uh, we appreciate you sharing uh, your expertise with us, and we will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. <laughs> <laughs>